I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I am Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us once again. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Great to be with you, Mike, Mary, so glad to be here. Wonderful. Archbishop, how has your month been, and how, how, how has summer been for you so far? Obviously, I know things are a little different now with COVID and whatnot. I don't hope you've been able to get out, but uh, do you have any specific things you'd love to do over this summer and summer activities? I try to be outside as much as I can. Uh, I was able to get away. I had uh, two weeks of vacation right after uh, the 4th of July. It was in uh, the northern part of the Lower Peninsula, which I always love. Oh. And I uh, was with priest friends and had a chance to uh, just be relaxed and to read. And uh, I, I, I tried to take advantage of the sunshine. Uh, uh, you know, it, right now it's kind of humid. But yeah. I remember what it's like to have below zero <laughs> yep. and yes. uh, <laughs> to have what seems like 20 minutes of daylight uh, yeah. Yeah. there <laughs> at the end of December. So yes. I try to revel in my summer. Yeah, oh, I, I do the that. same thing. Anytime it starts to feel a little uncomfortable, and I'll admit it's uncomfortable at times in the summer, I always do the same thing. I think about January and negative temperatures, and then it makes me feel a little bit better about it. <laughs> When you go on vacation, Archbishop Vigneron, are you able to kind of unplug from things? Is it actually truly a vacation for you? I, I'm, uh, I'm in recovery on that point, Mary. <laughs> I, uh, I make, uh, I've made a resolution, and I lived up to it most days, uh, to look at my phone twice uh, in oh, the good. day and no more. But uh, I can't completely unplug. Yeah, it's hard. I remember even when I was working in the church, I would try to take, you know, a sacred Monday off of work. But it's just, especially now with the way that we're connected to each other, it's tough to just really enter into that time of peace and relaxation. I try to think of uh, uh, the time apart, creating a time apart as an act of faith. Mm. That uh, I let Jesus go on watch, and He can get along without me for a while. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I lo- that's a good way to view that. That is that's a good great. way of thinking about it. Archbishop, I know you said you read on vacation. If you might, uh, just out of curiosity, what what types of things do you like to read just for your vacation time reading? Uh, I like uh, history and I like biography. I have mm. uh, put off working my way through a very. Uh, uh, detailed biography of uh, St. John Henry Newman, and I was able mm. to get through that on vacation. But nice. I like history. I find uh, as I've uh, grown older, I enjoy history more than fiction. So last month we spent some time talking about the creation of families of parishes, and I know just from uh, the work that I do with different church communities, people are excited about it and curious about it. Um, In the time since we spoke last, we know that um, our priests and lay leaders have been working to develop a plan. How's that work going? I think going very well. Uh, I think the work groups are uh, digging into uh, the tasks that I've asked them to perform. And I think they're bringing a lot of uh, light and wisdom to it. I think uh, one of the real advantages 
we have, and we've been told by other dioceses uh, that they agree, is that we, we're doing this on the basis of the synod. Uh, so mm -hmm. it isn't as if uh, we're simply making uh, institutional changes without a vision of what it's for. Uh, we know why we need to do this. Uh, we need to, need to do it uh, for the sake of being on mission. Uh, there are a lot of questions. Usually they involve the practicalities of it, and those questions are things that have to be determined. But <clears throat> the most important thing is to keep the vision. Uh, we want to uh, restructure our parochial life for the sake of being more effective on mission. And I don't know if you happen to see, I think it was just last week, the Holy Father's uh, Congregation for Clergy, which has special care on this area, uh, mm -hmm. issued uh, an instruction on this very topic. And oh, wow. it gives us some really good guidance about the mind of the church and grouping parishes together, how that can be done. Always uh, keeping uh, the focus on uh, what uh, Pope Francis calls us to, to a missionary conversion. So our parishes have to be engaged in a missionary conversion. Conversion's not easy. It always right. means dying to something, letting something go, uh, getting out of the boat, walking on the water. And uh, I hope to be helpful to all of us and uh, encouraging us to do that. And I look for, and I have to say, uh, there are times when I kind of quail about the magnitude of the change. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But uh, I get a lot of... Uh, encouragement from uh, the priests and the lay leaders telling me, hey, you get out of the boat too. You can do it. It's funny. I was talking to a couple friends about families of parishes yesterday, and they're, they're quite connected to different parishes in the archdiocese in different ways. And we were talking about exactly what you're saying, this connection to the synod and the generational work that we're doing. So the fact that you're saying that Pope Francis released a, a, spoke to uh, this movement of grouping parishes together, what a nod from the Holy Spirit, right? Exactly. exactly. That's cool. I'll have to look that up because that's really uh, neat to just see another indication that this work is very uh, blessed and ordained by God and the Spirit. So that's great. Wonderful. Well, Archbishop, I know you said you were on vacation early in July, and I know around that time is what marked the 24th anniversary of your ordination as Auxiliary Bishop of Detroit. So uh, obviously you served uh, from uh, here until 2003, and then you were obviously named to uh, Oakland, California. You spent a few years there out west, and you came back here in 2009. You know, thinking about your time uh, as a bishop and looking back over your years of service, are there any things in particular that you feel particularly grateful for or some things that have been kind of a surprise, the things you didn't expect being a bishop? Uh, uh, let's start with the surprise. I, I, never <laughs> expected, I never expected I'd have to build a cathedral, uh, oh. which uh, was presented to me as the task and in front of me as soon as I got to Oakland. I oh, really? I didn't know that. Wow. I don't know. Do you remember where you were in 19... You, you probably weren't even born yet, Mike, 1989, <laughs> the World Series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was born, but okay. I was nine years old. <laughs> well, in 1989, in the middle of the World Series, uh, screens went blank in, because of a game in San Francisco because there was a, a huge, uh, just a, mon a ma monumental earthquake in the that. area. Yep. And uh, the... Diocese of Oakland lost its cathedral at that time. Oh, wow. And oh, wow. I didn't so realize that. So when I went, went there in 2003, 
they said, uh, we have a plan for a cathedral, and you have to decide if you're going to do it or not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so uh, No pressure. <laughs> that was a surprise. Oh, my gosh. Uh, things I'm grateful for, I would say uh, it's been remarkable, the people that God has placed in my life as friends and co-workers, uh, mm. uh, the generous, talented, uh, inspiring, holy people that God has uh, 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 in his providence given me. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I'm grateful for is God's got a better plan than I do. (laughs) Things Uh uh, uh, are not on the the, uh, scenario that I might have expected, but uh, God's scenario has brought me many blessings beyond... uh, what would have happened if it had been my my own uh, scenario? Uh. I love seeing that. You know, when you went to Oakland, Archbishop Vigneron, did you think that you would be back in Detroit or no? No, yeah, no, you were no, thinking no. you were leaving because I wondered about that. The fact that you are in a diocese that you were raised in is that unusual or does that happen a lot? What is no? It doesn't work? happen very often. There was wow. a in the time I was uh, called back to Detroit by the Holy Father. There were a number of us who had that same experience. For example, somebody who's been a bishop about as long as I have, uh, who right around the same time I came back to Detroit, uh, was called back uh, as a native son of New Orleans to become the Bishop of New Orleans, uh, Archbishop of New Orleans. But uh, uh, there were several of us at that one time, but it is quite, uh, it's the exception. I'm the 10th Bishop of Detroit but the wow. first Detroit priest to be our bishop. No way. That's super interesting. And probably a blessing that you can be by family as you do ministry, because I'm sure that's a particular challenge of the bishops when they get assigned to different places that are far away from their homes and their family, right? It is, and uh, certainly it's great to be back on my home turf. <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I think one of the, the thoughts of the Holy Father and uh, the cardinals who advise him on these appointments is that uh, it's good to have a fresh set of eyes, a good Mm -hmm. uh, mind and heart to look at things. And so it's good to bring, often, to bring somebody in. Sure. But uh, I can say for myself, uh, I think uh, my knowledge of the archdiocese, the priests and the people, I think has helped me be a be a good bishop. That's not, not to say that uh, someone who came from outside wouldn't have brought another set of uh, of graces to it. But right, uh, I, I think it. I can see the blessing of it, and uh, who, hope God isn't uh, doesn't think I'm haughty to say. I think he. <laughs> he I can see yeah. some wisdom in what he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, well, that see, that movement or not from the spirit. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you were able to hit the ground running a little bit better right off the bat because of you, your knowledge of the history of the archdiocese and its priests and decisions that have been made having grown up here and everything. You know, that seems like a real positive thing. Well, there, there, there are, uh, as uh, a great spiritual author once uh, said to us when I was in the seminary, you can't get all the cookies in one jar. Right. <laughs> and uh, there's always trade-offs. And yeah. So I, but I do feel it, it has, uh, I, I can feel the blessing of it. That's awesome. Well, today I'm, I'm so excited for the topic that we're going to talk about. Um, it's something that's been on my heart weighing heavily. Obviously, we're living through this pandemic of COVID. Um, it's funny, I, I saw a, 
a Facebook mug yesterday that said, I long for precedented times because we're so used to unprecedented times as we move through this. Ever since the panic, uh, the pandemic began, there's been so many changes and hardships, and a lot of them can appear to lend themselves to despair. Um, with a future that has so much uncertainty, many of us are feeling that temptation to despair. Our jobs are uncertain. Our professional environments are uncertain. We're not sure what we're going to do with our children in the fall. Some of us aren't even confident what Sunday worship is going to look like for the next couple of months. We have no idea when the pandemic is going to end and when this disruption to our lives is going to cease. But uh, you have been such a steady voice for me personally, and I know so many people that have been blessed to tune into this podcast um, with the comforting words that you have shared, reminding us that this is God's appointed time and we are his people. I can't tell you how many times Archbishop Vigneron, I have reminded myself of that when I get nervous or anxious, that your words have reminded me that this is God's time for his people. Early on when this began or, or moved through Lent, you said this is the Lent that God made for us. So today what we're going to talk about is maybe even going bigger to this idea of how to lean into hope in times of despair. This is the 2020 that God made for us and that we were created for to live in this time. Can you speak to that just a little bit more and what you mean by that, that this is God's time for us? God's in charge. Mm. Uh, there's such a big difference between uh, hope and optimism. Mm. Hope is uh, a looking forward to something good with a confidence that one will attain it. It's not simply an aspiration. It's part aspiration. It's, it's anticipating, it's expecting uh, what one really longs for, confidently that, that, that I'll get there. It'll be given to me. I will have it. Uh, why do we hope? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. Mary, when I have a, a day like you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's what I say to myself. Look, do you believe or not that Jesus mm -hmm. rose from the dead? And if he did, he will conquer, he will triumph. And uh, all I need to do is to be, is to be part of the, his project. And I will have, he can do this. He has made a promise, and he can keep it. That uh, I think it's all about the resurrection, really. And so this is our time. Uh, I don't know exactly how uh, living in hope is going to uh, pr turn, it, turn out practically, uh, uh, what mm. concretely it's going to mean. But our principal task, our real vocation, is to glorify the Father. Uh, to abandon ourselves to his will and so let the world know that we've got a father that we trust and we know that he's not going to let us down. I think this is why uh, our great uh, priest, Father Solanus, could say to people who came to him, uh, thank God ahead of time. That's mm -hmm. an example of, of real Christian hope, uh, to tell God what we, what we think we need and to let him then give us what he knows we need, and to thank mm. him for that. I think hope and gratitude, Christian thankfulness, are uh, really two, two dimensions of the same heart and attitude. 
Uh, I don't know, Mary, if it ever, Mike, if it strikes you when you go to Mass after the priest, you, the priest says, lift up your hearts, and you say, we got them there. They're, they're, up, they're lifted up. <laughs> they lift right. up to the and Lord. Yeah. the priest says, it is right to give God, it is right to give God thanks and praise. You say it's right and just. Mm -hmm. And the priest then says, boy, are you on target. It's right <laughs> always and everywhere to give mm -hmm. God thanks. Mm -hmm. you ever think about that? Always? Everywhere? I mean, that, it strike. I, I didn't think a lot about this when I was newly ordained, but I've come to a point in my life where this is what strikes me uh, right between the eyes when I lead the Eucharist. Everywhere? Auschwitz? Right. Thank God, there? Right. Always in the middle of the pandemic? There's a gift given? Yes. And the, and the gift... I'm sorry to be running on like this, but no, the this gift, is wonderful. <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. The gift that we're given didn't come cheap. Uh, Jesus purchased this gift for us by by the last drop of his blood. He had to die so that he then could triumph in his rising, and in that, make it possible to. There isn't any space or time where Jesus is not Lord. Uh, in which uh, God cannot bring good and do good. It, because if there were, there would be even an infant, might be infinitesimal, but some small corner of the cosmos where the devil uh, was able to triumph. But there isn't even one little, not even under the radiator or behind the cupboard uh, that... Uh, he has he has a lordship it's such a profound narrative to rest in when so many of us are thinking like what next it just seems that we are just spiraling out of control with you know the pandemic and then the racial riots and then the division and there's just so many things to ground ourselves in the anchor of what we know to be true it's just it that's the source of our hope right Right, and it doesn't mean we, we stop struggling, uh, that we give up trying to do our best and make things better and uh, figure out what to do about the kids and school mm -hmm. and uh, how we're going to pay the rent. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't become passive, but we, we can live with serenity. Hmm. Mm. That's great, Archbishop. Thanks for that. I mean, I know you said earlier, and I, and I love what you said there, you said hope is not the same as optimism. Um, and I think... Today, and especially in our just normal parlance and the way we speak, we kind of uh, conflate them or we kind of put them uh, juxtaposed and just right next to each other in the same sense of the way we use the term. So I was wondering if you could just kind of elaborate a little bit on that distinction, specifically on hope as opposed to merely an optimism, and especially hope as tied to the other theological virtues of, of you know, faith, hope, and love, of course. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, it, it's exactly where you've... Uh where you want to direct the conversation, Mike, uh, hope is a theological virtue. Optimism is a, is a disposition that comes naturally to some people. Uh, other people are, tend to see the dark side, the, the negatives, but even they, can, they ought to have hope right. uh, because it isn't a, a disposition that, that's about nature. It's a, a 
habit of heart and mind uh, that is a share in the heart and mind of Jesus to trust in the Father. That mm. really is the difference. The three theological virtues are habits. Uh, a habit, you know, a disposition to be able to act. Uh, I don't know. Mike, you play an instrument, right? I do. I play uh, drums and a little guitar and stuff as well. Okay, so you have a, you have a habit of, of, of drum playing. Now, I could thump on a drum, but I don't have a habit of being able to excel at drum playing. Mm. You've got the habit. You have a ready disposition to excel in the performance. That's just a habit. The theological habits are ready dispositions to, to behave as sons and daughters of uh, the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ to be able to do what Jesus does. That's, the the that's why they're called theological, because they're about God. They have God as uh, their goal, and they have God as their, the, uh, the power behind these habits. They're, they're given to us, they're graces. We, we, uh, we can help let them be perfected. And so hope is... Uh, the trust that lies in the heart of Jesus uh, being shared in our heart. I don't know if that helps make, make clarify the difference. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So then would you say that when we say that we are people of hope, what are we hoping for then? Is it, is it the confidence that God is present to us, that God is in control when we say, you know, we, we lean into the habit of, hope during the pandemic? Are we hoping that the pandemic goes away? What do we hope for as Catholic Christians? We hope that God's will will be done and that we're confident that God's will will be done and that uh, his will is to give us himself and he will do that uh, in any moment that we turn to him. And so, yeah, we hope uh, that uh, he will hear our prayers and uh, deliver us from the pandemic, if that is uh, for, the, for his glory and, and our salvation. But we are confident, we're confident that whatever he permits to happen will be a way for him to be glorified and for us to be saved and for right. our kids to be saved and for our loved ones to be saved. <clears throat> yeah, I like that you said that we tell God what we think we need, and then we trust that he will give us what we need. Um, that's, I think that that's, that kind of sums it up, right? It does, and he knows better what we need than, what, than, than we can calculate. Uh, he, he, you know, <laughs> the marvel, uh, so, there's such a difference between the God that Jesus reveals to us, the God that mm -hmm. came to speak to Abraham, the God of the Revelation, from a, a philosophy God is that uh, the real God, the revealed God, cares more about our getting to be happy than we do. Do you ever mm. think about that? Your happiness, Mary, is more important to God than it is to you. Right. I mean, that just, that's, that blows my mind. 
as a mom, one of the things I've been praying for as we just look at our society and with the pandemic and all the fears that come from a parent point of view is exactly what you said. Not necessarily for me. Like I, I can have confidence. I think that God wills my happiness more than I can even, you know, imagine. But sometimes when it comes to my kids, I have a hard time leaning into that trust that God wants for my kids more than I can imagine for them. Cause I have so many worries resting in, in raising them in this world, you know, but like you said, God wants more for them, more happiness and more freedom and more love than I can possibly fathom. And, and there's a certain kind of, uh, uh, liberation that comes from that, that yes. you and your husband don't have to be perfect parents. <laughs> right. I mean, it, I mean, if it, if it were only up to you, I mean, right. that would, that just could crush you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it, I mean, I don't, I'm not at all worried that you're going to become indifferent or lazy, you know, lackadaisical. Sure. But uh, it does let some of the steam out. It does actually. And it, 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 I think that's one of the things, you know, I oftentimes think about hope in contrast to despair. And when I personally struggle with despair, it usually does have to do more with, um, with my children and the world that, that's being created for them. And, and that understanding that it, it takes a bit of a prayer and true abandonment to trust that to God and that God will be able to, with his grace, move in their lives in a way that I can't even imagine, you know? And he may permit them to have tough times. It's right. quite likely that he will. Yes. But he will, uh, he will give them this, the grace to use the tough times to get themselves ready for uh, an, e an eternity of bliss with him. Mm -hmm. Archbishop, why do you think hope is kind of so particularly important during difficult times? You know, I mean, I, I like your distinction that you're talking about between um, optimism and hope. And I think a lot of times we, we just desire to feel optimistic. But what you're talking about is obviously more of a virtue, which is a habit. So it's a gift first given, and then a habit which we cultivate in ourselves. H how do you see that? Or how have you seen it in your own life help you through your different anxieties and fears? And how would you encourage us to allow it to kind of wash over us and help us through this time of anxiety and fear? Well, uh, for myself, uh, Mike, I, I take very seriously the, the responsibilities, the pastoral responsibilities I have. Uh, uh, and it's not just for the Catholics of uh, the six counties. I, I have, an, have to be accountable to God for what I've done to for the salvation of everybody in this archdiocese. And uh, without hope, without a confidence that God can use the, uh, the little mustard seed I am, uh, the, you know, I don't even know if I bring six loaves and four fish <laughs> to, to the dinner. But, uh, uh, well, Paul put, put it, you know, the, we, we hold the treasure in earthen vessels. Uh. And uh, I, I would, without uh, God giving me hope, I, I think I'd have lost my mind. It's funny. So uh, on that point, uh, Pope Benedict, in his 2007 encyclical on hope, says, the one who has hope lives differently. The one who hopes has been granted the gift of a new life. He goes on to say, hope empowers us to live differently because a Christian understanding of hope is rooted in the unshakable conviction that God loves us and wants our good. 
a fact memorably exclaimed by Paul's declaration in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? This point obviously uh, parallels your kind of words that this is the time that God has created us for. So knowing that and taking that you know, into context, how can we live differently in this pandemic? Like how should a Catholic Christian uh, be living in a way different than some of the turmoil in our world? How can we encourage others to live differently with us? I think uh, prayer and witness are two very important things and uh, invite people to pray with us, I think is uh, very, very powerful. Uh, I've been uh, with uh, uh, a man who is very much devoted to uh, evangelization, Steve Dawson and the St. Paul Institute. And uh, when uh, people come for prayer, uh, Steve says, well, let's pray now. And so I think if uh, I find, you find uh, somebody who comes across our path who seems uh, to be cast down, uh, doubtful about uh, the triumph of the good, um, I think to pray together, to, to say, let's pray. Uh, let's ask God to come into this thing that seemed, this time, this difficulty that seems so very, very dark. I think uh, that's a very powerful kind of witness and very efficacious uh, approach. Are there any aspects of this pandemic that you've personally struggled with that are difficult for you, and how has hope kind of hope kind of helped you navigate that? Well, I, I mentioned. Uh, well, I'm very concerned about uh, the danger that the uh, pandemic is to uh, to people in general, and especially mm -hmm. to people I love. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a nephew who uh, has a condition that. Uh, uh, makes him vulnerable. I have a niece who uh, is a nurse, uh, those kinds of things. I, I, so it's very personal as well as uh, I'm very concerned about uh, the vulnerable priests of the archdiocese. Mm. Um, so that's, that's a matter I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the spiritual damage that's being done in people's lives by the pandemic. Mm. Um, I don't know if people are going to get too accustomed to not being at church on Sunday. I don't know what that might mean for the future. And uh, just in, in, uh, I find it difficult to uh, uh, feel challenged by the impact that the pandemic is having on the ordinary affairs of the diocese. Uh, mm. I was particularly uh, saddened by the fact that we had to uh, uh, move away from uh, our uh, sent on mission uh, parish uh, planning process mm -hmm. and uh, recalibrate the whole effort. But I'm confident in all of this. Uh, if, if I abandon it all into God's hands, mm -hmm. it will be even better than, uh, than the way I had expected it to go, all, all of those things. And do you consciously, you know, because some of the weight of this probably falls so heavily on your shoulders being a faith leader in this area. 
do you consciously bring that to prayer to ask God to instill <laughs> you with hope? No, but with, with hope in particular. I mean, obviously. I do. Oh, I do. I do. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have uh, I have a little booklet that I, I use regularly in meditation. Uh-huh. It's called mm. the Golden Councils of St. Francis de Sales. Mm. And uh, the message in most every page is the same about uh, giving oneself over to God with uh, mm. abandoned love. Uh, but uh, one little line that I've been living with greatly is, uh, God has helped you in the past, and when you can't walk, he'll carry you. Oh, that's good. That's the kind of father he is. Archbishop, I know working in the parish, we've been uh, trying to make calls out to a lot of our parishioners and just touch base and make sure people are doing okay and see if there's any needs we can meet for them. And, and you know, a few of those phone calls have kind of, uh, what's emerged is obviously some people that are really, truly uh, kind of riddled with fear and anxiety over a lot of this. And of course, this is having its toll on so many people these these days in 2020. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts, or just as, as, a, as a priest, as a bishop, what kind of practical advice would you give uh, people tempted to despair at this time? Um, what kind of encouragement or any words that you would that you would give to them uh, that would hopefully act as like a, a healing balm, if you will? Well, I think the best way for the word, the saving word, to come to people who are on the brink is for uh, somebody to do it, uh, to speak to them personally, a word mm. of encouragement. Mm. Uh, and the word of encouragement I would offer to uh, to someone is I know to to acknowledge the the pain of it, the challenge, the fear. I mean, fear is uh, a disposition of uh, expecting the good that we want will be taken away from us. To acknowledge that that's very real, and there are a lot of reasons uh, to feel that fear. But there, to get back in touch with the conviction that Jesus is risen from the dead and to uh, bring all of that fear to him himself and ask him to cast it out. I think uh, we can make, uh, take ourselves down a dead end if we imagine that uh, handling our fear uh, is uh, falls to us as a kind of a, a task. Huh. Uh, we can't overcome our fear. It's only Christ in us. It's only the Holy Spirit who can overcome this fear. Uh, in one sense, uh, of ourselves, put it that way, we can't hope. It's only huh. Christ in us who can hope, and we have to ask him to do that. And I think... Uh, uh, for for somebody who is uh, uh, what Pope Francis calls uh, uh, on the way with that person, who accompanies that person, for the 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 individual, the fearful individual, and and the sister, the brother, to to make that prayer together, I think is uh, the most efficacious way. Hmm. So one of the things that, and this is kind of a a harder thing to talk about, but that we know to be true is that the Eucharist helps 
our faith and helps to kind of um, encourage the habit of faith, hope, and love of the theological virtues. It strengthens us and it nurtures us. And it's just so crucial in terms of cultivating hope to be near to the Eucharist and receive the Eucharist. And yet we're at this time where, um, where many of us are, have discerned that it's not safe for us to receive the Eucharist. And so how do we, how do we reconcile that Archbishop Vigneron, not being close to the Eucharist, knowing that it's this source of strength? I think to take uh, the extraordinary uh, means by which we can uh, participate in, in that Eucharistic strength. I think that's one of the advantages of uh, the media that lets us do all this live streaming, mm -hmm. that uh, we can be in, in spirit, united to the Holy Sacrifice, make a spiritual communion, mm -hmm. uh, by which we ask God to give us the fruit of communion, even though we're not able to have the experience of, uh, of Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps uh, to be uh, even more intentional about it, uh, in, in the absence of being able to go to church. Uh, maybe some people who are S Sunday Mass goers uh, can now uh, be in communion uh, uh, through the media with Mass twice a week, that sort mm. of thing. Mm. Uh, take extra time to uh, uh, be focused on the Eucharist and to ask God uh, even more ardently for the uh, fruits of Holy Communion than they did when uh, they actually able, were able to receive the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. It could become more devout, more Eucharistically devout uh, in this time than they were uh, before. That might be the grace of, of, uh, offered at the time. You know, you spoke uh, when we talked about kind of some of the ways that Mass is altered in this pandemic, receiving the Eucharist, celebrating the Eucharist, about some real true discernment about whether or not we should be attending Mass on Sunday for our own families and kind of really prayerfully and sincerely taking that to consideration if we should be in worship spaces. Do you have any guidance about how to discern that. Because I like my family, we're going to Mass now and we're uh, taking all the precautions. My children wear masks and our parish has done an excellent job with social distancing. But I'll tell you, some Sundays, there's like a, a larger than I'm used to temptation to be like, oh, we have a dispensation this week, so we don't necessarily have to go. And I have fought that temptation. But do you think maybe that temptation is more profound for us now? How do we discern through that to make sure that we're tapping into the Eucharist during these times? Well, I think uh, your own discernment is very correct that uh, uh, the, uh, to not go because you have a dispensation just in order to use the dispensation without a, a good reason, mm -hmm. uh, that, that's not helpful. I mean, I'm not, you're not breaking the law, but you're not helping your own spiritual life uh, uh, that way. So I think that's a very good question. I mean, do I have a good reason to use the dispensation uh, more than uh, simple uh, uh, convenience? Uh, I think that, that, that's very important. Mm. Yeah, to make sure, I think, that we, 
we lean into the Eucharist if we're able to, especially during this time, as a source of our hope, right? Because then it becomes this authentic theological virtue for us versus the distinction of optimism. We're really relying on Jesus to help us with it. Right, and do I recognize that I really ought to be there if I can be if I can be there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 God is glorified. Uh, right. that's, God would like me to be there, and. To, to put it uh, in an incarnational term, Jesus disappointed if I don't show up at his at his banquet. He'd, he'd mm. like, I mean, that's the isn't that the parable? You know, he, he he his father wants the banquet hall to be filled. Yes, and that's a, a real personal way too to look at it versus kind of a legalistic way. You know, am I going to be in the state of sin if I'm not there on Sunday? But no, it's it's, it's Jesus wants us there with him if we're able to worship with him. Right, and I don't want to make people. I don't want to make people scrupulous either. No, of course not. Yeah, people need to to make their best judgment. I think there yeah. are uh, lots of people who who really do feel that uh, there there are um, sound reasons to keep themselves more secure. Mm-hmm. So, in unleash the gospel, you talked about the progression of encounter, grow, and witness. And once we have encountered. Christ. We grow as his disciples and we must witness what we have uh, to others. And a lot of times I think some of us get stuck in the grow part and not necessarily the witness part. So when we talk about hope and trusting in God, how do we share that with others? And maybe this is kind of going to ask for some creativity. How do we do that in times of pandemic? How do we witness to others hope? What can we say to cultivate that, uh, not only in our own lives, but to go forward with that during this time? When people ask me about witness, Mary, I I tend to think in terms of concentric circles. Mm -hmm. So the first person that you need to witness to, if I could be so bold, is your husband. Right. Uh, And then let him witness to you, call that out from him. Mm-hmm. You need to you you witness to your children, and then keep moving out your relatives, your neighbors, uh, and and then you get even to people you uh, you deal with uh, in just ordinary, you know, going to uh, Myers or Walmart uh, to to find a way to do that. And God will, uh, if if you pray every morning. Uh, to uh, be on watch for the person that God's going to send you uh, so that you can be his prophet to that person. Somebody will show up. It it will happen. Uh, Doesn't have to be particularly dramatic. Uh, But uh, there will be an occasion for you, for me, uh, to be a a witness to hope. And uh, it could be something as simple as... uh, uh, being patient, uh, uh, but uh, God, God has a plan, and and I think so. I, what do I think? In in some, uh, I've rattled on. I guess uh, no, not at all. Make make you know every morning uh, as part of the morning prayer. Lord, help me be ready uh, to deal to offer uh, the witness to glorify you. To whomever it is you send me, for that to uh, be their messenger, their angel today, and uh, at the end of the day, when you make your examination of conscience, just think about how that happened. How how did it go? 
What a great uh, habit. Yeah. That's, I've never even thought to pray in the morning. Like, let me be a witness if you want me to witness to someone today and make me aware of that. And I think one of the best ways to witness is, is what I've learned from uh, some street evangelizations is, um, can I pray for you? And if they say yes, we can say, how about right now? Can I, mm-hmm. can, can I offer a little prayer right now with you? I like what you said there about the uh, circles, the concentric circles as well, because I think uh, for a lot of people, especially in the pews, and I, I know I deal with this here at the parish life a lot, people I think get, get uh, riddled in fear over the idea of evangelizing because they think it means the street evangelization. So they feel like they have to go from zero to 60, and that's a, that's a big leap to make, whereas what you're trying to suggest is obviously like start small. Start with yourself, your, your spouse, you know, uh, your family, friends, coworkers, and let the, the spirate out, if you will. Um, and you, you'll maybe get to the point where you're supposed to do door-to-door or street evangelization, and maybe you won't, and that's okay. But there's still a witness that's to be done at any of those levels. That's a great reminder, Archbishop. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was uh, in a, happened to be in the airport one time with a, a professor from Notre Dame, and we got talking about evangelization. I think he's an engineering professor. And he said that uh, the particular way he and his wife evangelize is that uh, once a month they have some sort of social time at their home on Sunday, and they invite uh, neighbors randomly. I mean, they don't all have to be Catholic. They just invite neighbors to come. Maybe it's a barbecue. Maybe it's... uh, a frisbee uh, championship, or something. they just mm-hmm. do something, you know, families with families, yeah. but they always make sure that there's a, a time of prayer, uh, usually informal prayer, but uh, you know, to, to they all gather and thank God for the the grace of their families and the good things that you know mm-hmm. what that kind of prayer would be like. Absolutely, yeah. and. Uh, the professor said that he thought one of the best uh, means of evangelization is for his family to witness to the other families in the neighborhood that uh, being centered on Christ is what makes makes their family life work. Archbishop, is there anything else specific that you just kind of want to add as far as uh, this idea of hope, especially hope during this time of uh, 2020, which is such a difficult year that we've gone through so far? One particular thing I I might ask is uh, for the listeners to be encouraging of their parish priests uh, to uh, uh, express to the the priests their appreciation for uh, uh, all the extraordinary things the priests are doing to try and uh, uh, give pastoral care in this very unusual time and to... uh, to you know, shore up the priest's own conviction that, uh, that God will bring good fruit out of our efforts.
Well, we've asked people from the Archdiocese to submit their questions to Eyes on Jesus podcast at AOD.org. Each month, we ask you, Archbishop Vigneron, to answer a handful of those questions covering all sorts of topics. If anyone listening would like to send us a question, you can go ahead and email us at eyesonjesuspodcast at AOD.org. Make sure to include your first name and your home parish, and then, of course, your question. So, Archbishop Vigneron, the first question comes from Joshua um, from St. Joseph Parish in Trenton. And his question is, are tattoos sinful or bad? He goes on to say, I already had several when I became Catholic nine years ago and have gotten additional Catholic tattoos since my conversion. I would love to continue to get tattoos, but only if I know that's okay. I have heard many conflicting opinions from Catholics and priests. I would love to get your take on it. Thank you so much. And thanks for being an excellent example and leader. Well, I, uh, I need to uh, give full disclosure and say that I, uh, I had to look this up in uh, the uh, Manual of Moral Theology, and, and awesome. the first one I went to didn't even uh, give me a, a guide about it. But uh, I'm going to talk about principles, and then uh, for Joshua, as he makes a particular decision about uh, whether or not to get the next tattoo, he's going to have to apply the principles. And... If he finds it difficult to apply the principle, he can talk to his parish priest about it. But the principle awesome. is that uh, the body, uh, we, have to, we have to protect two good parts, or uh, two goods when it comes to the care for our body. Uh, first of all, we have a responsibility to keep ourselves healthy. And also, uh, we, we can, a good thing, is to keep our body uh, looking good. That, that is a, a worthwhile uh, good. It's not the most important, but we can do that. Uh, if in a certain culture, uh, a tattoo, uh, a piercing, uh, is a way to enhance that kind of attractiveness, uh, that can be legitimate as long as it doesn't impede health, according to the moralists. Uh, however, uh, if uh, something, and they do particularly mention tattoos, uh, if in a particular culture uh, tattoos take on some sort of antisocial significance, or if they were to make it difficult for the person with the tattoos uh, to be able to engage with other people, uh, kind of created a, 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 a social distance uh, in mm. ordinary life, then, the t then tattoos become uh, contrary to the good of the body and the good of the person. So I think those are important principles. So per se, it seems to me we live in a culture that does not totally reject tattoos. Mm. Uh, and uh, there are ways that people find them uh, in enhancing. But I think that then the judgment has to be, uh, certainly you can't be uh, tattoos that are antisocial. Uh, it would be wrong to have a, a, a swastika or, or something certainly even blasphemous as a tattoo. Hmm. Uh, but also, uh, at what point uh, does uh, the accumulation of tattoos uh, impede a, a person uh, being able to uh, have uh, 
you know, free, ordinary kind of communication with most people. Mm. And uh, if I were Joshua's parish priest and he wanted to talk to me about this, one of my questions to him is, at what point might this make it difficult for you uh, to uh, uh, find the woman that uh, God wants you to marry? Are, are you creating a difficulty in uh, being able to, to date and, and find a good wife? That, I think those are important. That'd be the way I'd go about it. Uh, you both are catechists. You both serve. Uh, ask me any further questions or clarifications, or maybe you have some, some clarification you could offer about it. I actually love that answer, Archbishop Ignoran. I actually have a small tattoo on my forearm that I got after I did a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It's the Jerusalem cross. And I find, and I, I work with young people and young adults, it actually enhances my ministry. It's not, um, it's not an overtly large one, but when people ask me about it, I'm able to tell them about the pilgrimage that I experienced. And on that pilgrimage, I had prayed heavily that God's will be done, but that I meet a spouse. And three weeks later, my husband asked me on our first date. So I, I consider that a Holy Land blessing. And so for me, it's it's been helpful in ministry, but I love the distinctions that you make because I think it is important that, especially as Christian Catholics, we want to look approachable to all people and to be able to... Um, you know, witness if we're if we're putting tattoos on us, why are we doing it, and what are we trying to show with it? So I think you did a really good job with that, don't you, Mike? I do. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I I've think always heard it, it comes down a lot to cir like circumstantial and like intentions. You know, so what are the intentions that you have in mind behind getting the tattoo? Like, so you know, obviously, like you mentioned, Archbishop, to get a tattoo of a swastika. What's going on there? Why would you want <laughs> right. that? You know, but right. to get a Cairo or to get some other religious symbol or something someplace uh you know it's obviously another thing to get a tattoo on the middle of your face you know like so you right. might get a cairo but it's on the middle of your face well why are you doing that you know so right. it's just a lot of intentional uh, a thought about intentions and circumstances around it so yeah i thought you answered it great archbishop the the moralists say that uh, you know it, it can uh, a tattoo can be within certain social circumstances, a, a way to in, enhance uh, your physical appearance, and, and that's right. acceptable, as mm -hmm. long as it doesn't hurt your health. Mm -hmm. But you have to take into account uh, what, it, uh, uh, what it does to your interpersonal relationships. Right. I love the completeness of the answer, too, because I've definitely had people that have been a little scandalized by my, and it's a very small tattoo, just saying, oh my gosh, I, I thought that was a grave evil that we weren't allowed to do that in under, under any circumstances, and that wasn't my understanding. My understanding was much more where your understanding is, Archbishop Ingram, so it's helpful to know I didn't make a tragic mistake nine years ago. <laughs> well, uh, I, I wouldn't have, uh, I, I needed to uh, read the, the, the moral manual. The, right. The, I, I will be honest with you. That's great. Yeah. Gives, gives you the principles to apply. Very good. Well, Archbishop Kathy from St. Michael the Archangel in Livonia asks the question, what is your advice for those of us who are faith formation leaders in the Archdiocese of Detroit as we walk through this journey of returning our students to schools in the midst of COVID? Looking for your wisdom, insight, and grace. As I thought about this question, Mike, it occurred to me that uh, you can answer from two sides. One is uh, for uh, uh, the cate catechist, for Kathy, about her own faith journey, and then uh, about the faith journey of people uh, she serves. So um, I think 
again, this takes us very much back to the earlier conversation about hope, uh, to uh, ask God, uh, ask the Holy Spirit especially, I think is the right focus, to imprint in her heart, inflame in her heart, uh, the abandonment of, of Jesus himself, which in us is, is a form of hope, and to practice the grace, uh, the, and to practice uh, every day looking for the grace that God offers. And I think that, that can be very much a, a habit of prayer, to begin the day saying, Lord, show me, or, or as I look at this day, uh, help me already see where the grace is going to be and what I anticipate. And then at the end of the day, to take account. Uh, uh, some of the, the uh, spiritual authors call this uh, an examination of consciousness, that at the end of the day, it isn't just about uh, totaling up uh, the mistakes, the failures, but where, where was grace offered to me today in dealing with that uh, crabby dad or... Uh, uh, being cut off or uh, uh, I mean, significant things. Uh, uh, the uh, hearing the bad news about the increase of uh, COVID infections. Where what's the grace offered there, and did I take it? So, uh, praying for an increase of hope. This habit of looking for uh, the gift in any situation and praising God for it. And then I think. Uh, this is very much part of being a catechist, is it's out of our own faith journey that we're able to walk with others, as uh, uh, she mentions. And so uh, not only to uh, share this pra these practices with uh, her students, but to rehearse them, to do them together. I mean, it seems to me that as a catechist, that's a, a most effective way is uh, to not only teach people what to do, but to do it with them. And not simply as a kind of rehearsal, but to, uh, to, be, to be doing it authentically and to make them part of, of the doing. I, I think it, maybe I've oversimplified, but that, that's how it looks to me. But again, you're both catechists, what do you think? Yeah, I think it partly depends on, I don't know if she's trying to ask from, um, you know, obviously everything you said was great, I think from a personal level. I don't know if the question is also seeking out more of a um, concrete kind of logistics and practical kind of answers, you know. Um, oh, yeah, I'm not real good at the practical. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, I'm not sure exactly what she was looking for, you know, but uh, I think, like you said, it's very difficult, you know, to walk through this journey of returning our, um, back to school. Um, and all of this kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, just following, obviously, the governor's orders and those types of things, uh, I think that's one way of doing it. Um, and then just following the practical things that need to be done, you know, uh, but always in a mind, mindfulness of faith, always in a mindfulness of hope, as you said, always seeking to, uh, to bring the Lord even into this difficult times of the pandemic and always yeah. assuring and encouraging our young people in faith through this difficult time, too. I didn't think about that side of it, Mike. Uh, you know, she may. This may be a question about how to make decisions regarding uh, uh, the practicalities of uh, running a program and how you do that. Uh, th we're trying our best uh, here in uh, the Coria and the Chancery to give uh, protocols and guidance. I think we're 
We're going to keep on, we'll keep up that work, uh, trying to bring light as best we can to give advice. Um, and I, th I think uh, the general principle has to be we need to be reasonably safe, mm -hmm. but we can't be absolutely safe. I just don't see how we're going to be able to pull that off. Right, and, right. Uh, and that's, that's every leader's responsibility is to make a prudent judgment to, mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think everybody's doing that. Uh, you, you, both, both of you, with your families, uh, mm -hmm. trying to figure that out. <clears throat> What's the, 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 uh, the reasonable ground that's neither uh, cowardly nor foolhardy, right? Uh, about it. But I think uh, for leaders in the parish life, that we 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 can provide guidance at the level of. Uh, uh, the archdiocese, m my co-workers and me, but obviously that's a team uh, discernment under the leadership of the parish priest, I think. One thing that I've just uh, really been leaning into during this whole time is the, the virtue of prudence, right? And just praying that God gives us prudence and, and what prudence is, right? So taking all of the knowledge that we have and moving forward with that. So maybe just praying too, relying on that gift from the Spirit, uh, for good prudence as we make decisions moving into the fall. That's what I've been praying for within my own family. Oh. Well, I think that's, <clears throat> that's exactly it. And uh, sometimes I try to, I wind up avoiding the use of the word prudence because for some time, for some people, it sounds like uh, the synonym for prudishness. But it <laughs> right. is, yeah. uh, it, it's good practical judgment, the kind of thing uh, that uh, mom or dad says, uh, uh, what were you thinking? Right. <laughs> Use your head. That's prudence. I had a moment of catechesis about about a month ago where somebody had posted just a real good teaching on what prudence is because she felt like it was such an important virtue for this particular time. And it was a refresher, you know, to take all of the facts and then to to trust, but also to trust with knowledge of what we're doing. And it was it was really good for me. And I think honestly, church workers right now, people that work for parishes. Uh, school administrators, it's just tough to try to decide a way forward. But that uh, that's but where I think hope comes in is uh, uh, we do the best we can because somebody right. has to make a decision. We, it, it, we can't just be paralyzed. Yeah, and it's funny because we're recording this at the end of July and I feel like decisions are so up in the air right now. And so <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough because at some point we are going to have to just decide about all kinds of things about school about religious formation about our retreats about sports you know all of these decisions are hanging there um, but leaning into hope is a good reminder as we kind of sit in the waiting so um, Lauren from St. Isidore has a question for you and she says how do parents and godparents begin teaching our children about the Catholic faith are there any resources that would help young preschoolers? That's a pretty specific question. What changes can parents make in how we live our lives as Catholics to be better examples for our children? One of the best presentations I ever heard on this topic was part of uh, the McGrath uh, Institute at Notre Dame. And uh, there was a young theology professor who gave a witness and uh, he, he, he based this on some of the sociological research done at the university, and that uh, the, the statement, the axiom we use that's articulated in the baptism liturgy 
parents, uh, you are the first teachers in, of your children in the faith. Godparents, are you ready to help them? Uh, the, uh, the theology uh, professor said that the most important way to do that faith sharing is to have the, uh, the child uh, participate in one's own, one own faith life. Uh, to s not only to see you pray, but to, to pray with the child to uh, in invite that child into one's own discipleship and to, be, and to share that. Whatever devotions it might be, uh, that, that is the most important way to share the faith. Now, there can be some times of instruction, of course, but uh, really sharing one's experience of Christ is the most important way to share the faith to take, uh, take the child on a pilgrimage, to invite the child to come to Eucharistic devotion, to say a decade of the rosary with, uh, with the child, uh, to, uh, you know, what, whatever one's favorite uh, holy picture is. Uh, and it, it's a lot like, how do you share baseball with a kid? It's about uh, being, going, going to the game, expressing appreciation for the efforts the, the kid makes to play baseball, to play baseball with the kid. Uh, I think those, those are the kinds of things that uh, are, are about uh, how to do this. Now, resources, <clears throat> I'm going to have to uh, have uh, the person who's made the question probably better to talk to the uh, director of religious education at the parish. They, that person would know more than I do about, uh, about the resources available. But that's great because I think you hit on the, the, the meat of what we can do as parents is the resources are important and they aid us, but there's a foundation that we set by how we live and engage in our faith. That's probably more important than some of the programming we do, you know, so that's, that's, uh, fundamental, I think. Well, and I think it's, it's, uh, witness is important, but I think, uh, articulated witness. I mean, if, if, uh, somebody in the family, if mom or dad likes to fish and shares fishing with the children, they're probably going to like fishing. Right. At least right. they're going to like yep. being invited with mom and dad and, yeah. and going off or to play golf or, or some such thing. Thanks, Archbishop. Well, uh, last question here is from Nicole at St. Peter in Mount Clemens, and she writes, I'm a hospice nurse. I see many very devout Catholics who never missed even a daily mass for 60-some years. They'll become ill or lose their independence, and often the parish priest they know has long since died or retired as well. I often have trouble finding someone to administer the sacrament of the sick. What would you make? Uh, what should I do to make sure that my patients can get this sacrament? Well, is uh, is this under the ordinary? Let's. I'll make a distinction. Obviously, you you can't. Uh, the. Uh, is this a nurse or a hospice worker? I'm sorry, I didn't. Uh... Uh, she said it was, she was a hospice nurse. So this, you know, the nurse doesn't specify whether this is a general trouble 
or if this is uh, uh, something specific to COVID time. Mm. Uh, in a general manner, I would say the most important thing is to uh, find out what parish that, uh, that uh, the sick person belongs to and uh, be in touch with the parish priest there. And I, I think that, uh, that that's the proper person to give pastoral care to, to that individual. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't work, I think the person, uh, the nurse could always call uh, the pastor of the parish in which the hospice uh, is operating. Uh -huh. uh, if uh -huh. it's about uh, COVID restrictions, uh, we have uh, a kind of a hotline that we can use. Uh, to We have some priests who are uh, have have the protective gear, and uh, if, uh, if if that were the issue, uh, we can uh, get that to to these priests uh, through uh, Father Pullis's office. So that's uh, pullis.steve at aod.org. Well, Archbishop, thank you so much for joining us once again for this podcast. Are there any specific prayer intentions that you have that we can pray for you? Yes, uh, please pray that uh, God give us prudence, and that's what we need, right, Mary? Give <laughs> yes, us good practical. Day. <laughs> give us good practical judgment, uh, all of us up and down the line, mm -hmm. as we move forward with uh, forming our parishes into families. Amen. And Archbishop, would you mind leading us in a closing prayer? No, happy to do it. Once again, let's uh, commend ourselves to the loving care of the Blessed Virgin. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, our mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Incarnate Word, despise not our petitions, but in your mercy hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless all of you. Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like the Open Door Policy Podcast with Father Steve Pullis and Danielle Center, a podcast for joyful missionary disciples and our movement to unleash the gospel. Find it on your favorite podcast app.